How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my show. I don't usually do this. Usually Mark is here to say we're here on the show and Tom is here, but this is one of those nights where technical difficulties just seem to be here. But you know what's great about it? First of all, welcome everyone to the Dr. Joe Show. And let me first welcome right away, Melissa Harris. Melissa, just so you know, Tom and Mark may be coming on, but let me introduce Melissa, single mother of two children living in Oakland, California, where she was raised. She was on the fast track, the fast track to being a partner in a mid-sized ad agency when she gave birth to her second child, Sam. And the trajectory of her life changed. Melissa has now worked from home account manager for two virtual creative agencies in the Bay Area. In her free time, she drives kids from activities to appointments to play dates, volunteers at the neonatal intensive care unit at Alta Bates Hospital, where Sam was born, and helps her congresswoman fight for better health care for all Americans. And as it says again, lives in Oakland. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Melissa. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I am delighted you're here. And it, it may just be you and me, which is a rarity, which is great, though, because it gives us a chance to really do a deep dive into the book, One Pound, 12 Ounces, A Preemie Mother's Story of Loss, Hope, and Triumph. This sounds quite powerful, Melissa. Tell me, let's get right into it. Tell me about the book. Well, the book is, uh, I guess the pun is horrible to say, but a labor of love. Um, <laughs> we're going to get along great. We're I know, along great. okay. But, 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 uh, just one second. Let, let's just have a pregnant pause. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, so <laughs> the title uh, comes from the fact that when my second child was born, Sam, he weighed one pound, 12 ounces. He was extremely premature. He was born only at about 24 weeks gestational age. So that's six months. Um, let's see, my range is five, six months pregnant, four months early. Um, and he had a long fight of 95 days in the neonatal intensive care unit or the NICU. And the book's really chronicling not just his birth his stay in the NICU in his first year of life, but even getting to Sam was quite a uh, feat. I went through quite a bit just to even get pregnant with him. Mm. And, and is that where this book starts? Or? The book starts with me um, actually in the hospital uh, uh, trying not to give birth to Sam. So um, it opens with me lying in what's called Trandellenburg, which means basically my head was below my feet at about a 30 degree angle. I was only 23 weeks pregnant and I didn't really understand what was going on. And then it intersperses back and forth uh, to, I miscarried multiple times before Sam, but one of those miscarriages was for second trimester twins. Oof. And so while lying in Trendelenburg, I do a lot of reflecting back to the time when I lost the twins. 
and, and kind of what went into even the, I had secondary infertility. And so what even went into getting pregnant, not just with Sam, but also with the twins. What does that mean? Secondary infertility? Yeah, it's a, there's some great terms in the uh, OB world, but basically when I decided I wanted, you know, my now ex-husband and I were like, let's have a baby. We went, okay. And I was pregnant right away with my daughter. And it was an unremarkable pregnancy. I was pregnant. And then at 42 plus weeks, we did have to evict her because she didn't want to come out. I didn't know that story well. My firstborn was like that too. And that's exactly what it was. It was like an eviction. Go on. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was totally normal, no problem. And when it was time for us, you know, we said, okay, let's, let's have our second. It was not an easy thing. Um, Couldn't get pregnant for months and... Um, once I finally did get pregnant, that um, fetus I miscarried at uh, about eight weeks. No heartbeat was detected in my eight-week ultrasound. What I discovered along the way is I had something called a bicorneate uterus, which means that I basically had two distinct chambers in my uterus, which hmm. turns out is not so good for carrying babies. Um, and you know, the joke always was when I was pregnant with my first, my daughter, that she was it was totally normal, but it always looked like she was stuck on one side. It turned out she was stuck on one side. And so I had to have a number of surgeries to remove the, it's called a septum, which is what divided the uterus into two chambers. I had to have that nine surgeries to have that removed so I could even try and have a baby. And so... What, what's your daughter's name? Can we bring I, her into this? I mean... So, so in essence, she was a miracle. I mean, they just got to the right part of the uterus, I guess. Yeah. And so when I first went in to see the fertility doctor, he actually joked at me. He's like, I don't believe you have a daughter. I'm like, well, I, I can bring her in like, <laughs> right here. And she looks just like me. And he kept saying it's impossible. It's like, I don't know what to tell you. I got her. So in some ways, both of my kids are kind of miracles because I never should have been able to get pregnant with Irene. And Sam shouldn't have survived so throughout the the pregnancy and the um the appointments with the doctors they didn't see this as a you know the septum's not it's not visible on ultrasound it's such a thin membrane and when you know hindsight's a really powerful tool yeah c-section to have Irene because again she was trapped on one side and couldn't get into the right position the doctor that did the c-section thought that she had seen a septum but didn't think much of it because I had been pregnant with Irene and it was no problem and so when I started having the secondary infertility one of the tests they do is like a, a um an MRI with contrast dye and that showed it up showed the septum perfectly and that's when they sort of realized that it was, in fact, a, a major problem and probably contributed to the first miscarriage and quite possibly the, the twin miscarriage. Wow. Folks, this, this really is a very powerful story. Even though we've had technical difficulties uh, with the Dr. Joe show, they pale in comparison to the technical difficulties that Melissa had during this second pregnancy and the first one it sounds like it went fine maybe you know a little bit over but all of a sudden you find out that you basically have a uterus with two chambers yep and then all these surgeries in order to make it one chamber and then how did that 
affect fertility? Well, according to my fertility doctor, I was a fertility nightmare. Again, emphasizing why he feels that my daughter doesn't actually exist. Um, so, I mean, I had to have the surgeries and we also had to go through, I took medications to help ensure that I ovulated and um, to even get pregnant, we went with the old, I like to call it the turkey baster method, but you know, they call it the IUI. Um, and so I had to go through an IUI as well. Um, and that is what resulted in the first, the twin pregnancy, which made what, it- what, what is IUI? Oh, Intrauterine something? Something like that. Yeah. The turkey It's where they help things along by ensuring that the semen is as potent as possible and as directed to where it needs to go. Wow. Um, wow. And the medication that I was taking was supposed to ensure that one egg would drop with each cycle. And mm-hmm. my body obviously has its own mind to begin with, decided to drop two eggs. And that's how I ended up pregnant with twins at one point. Wow. And um, I carried the one twin um, miscarried at about 10 weeks. And the second twin held on to about 15 weeks. And um, it was a pretty traumatic miscarriage and, and dramatic because I started the, the final miscarriage in my office building in the middle of a client presentation. And oh. uh, yeah, it it was impressive. Uh, it looked like a horror scene in the bathroom. So I, it was bad. Oh my gosh. Um, and the second twin kind of held on for another day and then I just couldn't, my cervix gave out and my body was done. And so when it came time to try one last time, I kind of made a deal that emotionally, physically, everything, I could do it one more time. And if it didn't take, then I was only meant to have one kid. And I'm extremely grateful that I was able to get pregnant because I do adore my son. Even he's grounded until he's 16 for what he put me through. But um, yeah, I so I went in for that last IUI and got pregnant with Sam. And I was treated with kid gloves. I was on very strict. Um, if I had a drop of blood, I was on bed rest for a week. If I felt at all weird. I was on bed rest for a week. Um, and I had, uh, injections of hormones just to kind of help my body along. And really up until it wasn't okay, it was fine. There was, I had no problems. I barely was on bed rest. Like with Sam, it was like, yeah, I'm pregnant. And then I came home. It was my daughter's second week of kindergarten and my parents had picked her up. And so I went to go hang out and I would talk to my mom for a little bit when my daughter and dad were playing and I went to the bathroom and said, huh, I'm bleeding. Mm. And I called my doctor. She said, you're far enough along. I want you in labor and delivery right now. I want to know exactly what's happening. So, you know, I, I had no idea what was going on. Mom and I drove to the hospital and I drove and they took me into labor and delivery, hooked me up to a bunch of things and said, are you feeling your contractions? Looked at them I'm like, no. I was contracting every two minutes and I was almost fully dilated. And you couldn't feel it at all? I didn't feel any of it. Wow. Um, and worse than that, the gestational sac had started to come out and was visible on exam, which is why they 
put me in Trent Ellenberg to use gravity, basically, to pull the sack back where it belonged. Uh, yeah, so I lay, I lay in that position also for six days. And My goodness. Nothing feels better than the blood rushing to your head for six straight days, not able to move. They stopped letting me eat at one point, and there, I wasn't allowed to move. Like, if I needed to turn positions, a team of nurses had to come and rotate me. You were in the Trendelenburg for six days? Yep. And that's why... You say he was born at 24 weeks. I, because at the time, I mean, it's now, he's now 11. So let me just let everyone know he's 11. He just had his birthday. He's doing great. Hello, Sam. <laughs> Delighted to have you. Where? Where are uh, we? Well, have him come back in. We'd love to meet him if he wants oh, to. He'd love to come up, I'm sure, if I can find him. That would be great. But we'll see. Um, Go on. But basically, when at the time, the sort of viability was 24 weeks. And so when I went into the hospital, had I given birth, he wasn't viable. And it was my choice whether or not to continue the pregnancy. And then between 24 and 25 weeks at the time in California, it was up to the parents whether or not you resuscitated. Wow. And, you know, and when they talk about viability, we're talking about a kid who had over a million dollars worth of medical intervention. So, Yes, he survived, but it's not like he could live without literally $1.5 million worth of medical care. Approximately. But, but thank God we have that. And we yeah. have those people. We have the people who are dedicated to that. But we also have mothers like you who are willing to, to do what needs to be done. I mean, that's, that's enormous. How, how are you managing... I mean, how did you manage this, the mental health part of that, the psychology? I mean, you've had all these. So writing, I really, once Sam was born and I had a moment to myself, my, it, what started as an email basically to my brother, who at the time was living in Africa, um, became my salvation. I would spend the day in the NICU. And I would come home and I would write and I would just take everything that I had sort of absorbed and felt and seen and just dump it on, you know, digital paper. And it was my way of kind of releasing what had happened and processing some of it. But writing every day is what saved me. Um, It, and again, it started as a letter to my brother who then, suggested I turn it into a blog. So family members, I have family in South America and on the East Coast, and it allowed everyone to kind of stay up to date without me having to update people. And I just every day came home and I couldn't really function or sleep until I had that dump on paper. And you were working as well at this time? No, I took a leave of absence. Um, I had a kindergartner. Um, I have wonderful parents that live a mile from us, um, which was, uh, none of this would have been possible if they weren't present. And I had a community of people. Um, I would come home from spending the day in the hospital and there'd be, you know, food on my front porch, a full meal, dessert, everything. 
And every other day there'd be something else waiting. So I never had to worry about feeding people or any of that. Um, so, I mean, it, it was a community that kept me going and writing that helped me personally. So Sam was in the NICU then yep. for 24 weeks for, for basically what, four months? Yeah, he was there a total of 95 days. So he brought, he was born in September and brought him home on December 21st. Should he weigh when he came home? Well, I think he was a full four pounds, about 14 ounces, maybe. Yeah. You know, when you start at one pound, 12 ounces, he was pretty big in my book. Yeah. Um, There was a time in neonatology where people, mothers, fathers were not allowed to touch their babies. And then there was a huge revolution in research. People realized that it was actually the touch that often was one of the most important, important parts of of helping that little baby. So how was that for you? So they call that kangaroo care, which I just think is an adorable name. And the idea is you skin to skin, that you hold the infant with them nothing on and you nothing and you just put them on your chest and I got to hold Sam when he was two or three days old and he was this fragile tiny scary looking thing and it was the most wonderful moment because I you know you just put him there on your chest and you immediately can see an impact his breathing would regulate and so one of the things you look for in the NICU with little kids is the littlest ones is you'll hear A's and B's, apneas and rabies. So apnea, your breathing uh, slows down so that your oxygen levels drop and rabies, your heart rate drops. And when I would hold him, he would stabilize. He wouldn't have a lot of A's and B's and he would just happily sit there and I mean, for me, it was wonderful. It helped with milk production, um, for sure. And it was just, it was how I could be his mom while he was in the NICU, was holding him. And I would try to hold him as much as they would let me. So I was lucky um, in many ways, because in California, there are a lot of intervention programs, especially when you have a child born under a 1,000 grams, which Sam was. So we were followed by developmental pediatricians. We had intervention from a group called the Regional Center. We had a nurse that would come once a week to check on us, check on Sam, weigh him. So I never felt like, you know, they said, okay, see you later from the NICU where you've got 24-7 care. I'm like, you're on your own now. I had a lot of support. Um, from people who would come and sort of, I could ask questions, you know, was he gaining enough weight? Was he meeting milestones? Um, one of the crazy things with preemies, especially as early as Sam, is they have two ages. They call it actual and corrected age. So, you know, when he, I would, when he was one month old actual, his corrected age would be 30 weeks gestational. And you do that for almost the first two years of life. And so you... You track his the weight gain and the um, length and developmental milestones on the corrected age scale, not on the actual age scale, which was 
a tough one to balance because you have to remember both and kind of look for everything in that way. So I was, I was blessed to have the support that I had to ensure that he was meeting the milestones he needed to meet. Powerful. And so I want to just go back to this moment, the first time that he was resting on you. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that experience for you, what that was like? Um, I remember it was the first time since when I went into the hospital, I think I actually breathed. Mm-hmm. He, he had survived birth. And I just sort of had made this decision that he was going to live, survive his birth, he was going to live. And that was the end of it. And so holding him that first time made him so real. And it was kind of like, okay, kiddo, it's you and me, we got this. Uh, And I I just felt like I could breathe at that moment. I mean, we had a long road ahead and Quite honestly, I was in the most rose-tinted glasses you've ever heard of. I was very unrealistic. It just never occurred to me he could die or other things could happen at that point. But I that was just, I just was determined that he was going to make it. And no. that first time kind of cemented it for me. Isn't that wild, the, the whole science behind that? You know, the kangaroo care that you were talking about and the the, the breathing and just the natural species coming together it's it's really really fascinating it's amazing i mean what they've been able to do medically is one thing but just the simple touch of skin is mm-hmm. as all those medical interventions it's really incredible it, it we is one you were you were both one together in this and it's 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 so appropriate it's 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 really fascinating and I'm my mind's kind of blown by it all. Yeah. And people uh, are very connected. People, you know, right. with each other. I think part of because, you know, we we just are. Yeah. I mean I, I I have been blessed with four children and I remember each that first moment of having them in my arms. You know, having gone through, you know, watching Carol with the pregnancy and, but, and then, and then they're here. Um, I'm just curious. So he was in the hospital for, for 90 plus days and you were going back and forth because you have another kid at home. How, how did she manage this? So the first month I wasn't allowed to drive. So I was at the mercy of the people around me. But basically, we would get Irene to school, and then I would go to the hospital. And then around the time, right before it was time to pick Irene up from her aftercare program, either I would get picked up, or once I could drive, I would leave, and I'd pick her up, take her home, spend time with her at home. And um, I tried not to go back in the evening until we were getting closer to Sam coming home and I was breastfeeding him. Um but I would just, I would spend all day while she was at school in the hospital with him. And that was how I balanced it. I mean, it wasn't the most balanced for me, but it was dedicate school hours to one kid and then after school hours to the other until she would go to bed. I think I'm still recovering sleep 
and everything from that period. And that's 11 years past, right? Yeah. Then there's all the other stuff. I mean, now my daughter's 15 and a half, almost 16, and I've got an 11 year old. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll never recover all my sleep. But isn't it amazing what your body will allow you to do? Yeah. I mean, I joke because with, you know, when we talk about breastfeeding with my daughter, I dried up in three months. Like she was a formula baby. With Sam, my body had failed on many fronts. And I really think it was kind of going, sorry. And I (laughs) triplets. I ended up donating to a milk bank in the area, 27 gallons of milk. Wow. And uh, to another preemie mom, I donated milk direct to her to keep her son in uh, breast milk until he was one. And I breastfed Sam until he was over two years old. Wow. So, yeah, the body is a, it's an incredible thing. That's fascinating. I, I, that's so interesting. So, you know, we know that, that there's this neurochemical called, oxytocin mm-hmm. which you may or may not be familiar it is ultimately a neurohormone of trust but it is also involved in bonding between a mother and their child and involved in breast milk wetdown so i can't help wondering whether there you are in in this this stress time but also this time of euphoria because he's there yeah and that bonding and the, and the, the kangaroo and the oxytocin is probably just like, like just flowing through you. I mean, that's a really fascinating phenomenon you told about breastfeeding for basically three decades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, would, they highly recommended pumping in the NICU, um, pumping with your hand on your infant, just to kind of help with that milk production and, I can tell you, holding him, my milk would always let down and come in anytime I put him near me. Yeah, isn't that the coolest thing? That bond, and 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 you're right. I mean, maybe it was like saying, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've screwed up," but 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 saying we're we're now going to supply you with the nutrients that you need, Sam. And that's that's what you're doing. It's it's wonderful, incredible story. So. Um, there must have been some moments during those 93 days where things got a little bit more worrisome or was it just smooth sailing? Oh no, there's no smooth sailing in the NICU ever, no matter how good it is. Um, His first month was really, really rocky and it didn't, he had to have heart surgery when he was about a month, a little over a month old. Um, There's a valve in your heart that when you're born automatically closes, it's called the pactus ductus, something the PDA. And in Sam, it didn't close, which meant that his heart wasn't circulating blood enough, which meant his organs were shutting down. And it took them quite a bit of um, observing and, and sort of waiting to see to really figure out what he needed. And he had his heart surgery, and it was sort of like a different preemie after that. And then we had smooth sailing again with him just needing to gain weight and learn how to regulate his body temperature. And then more things started to happen. Um, he ended up having eye surgery, so he had retinopathy of prematurity, meaning his retinas were starting to detach. 
and he had to have a, it's a laser surgery on the eyes to save his eyesight. He, and you know, there were other things throughout where there'd be days where he was bad and there was one point where they had to push the crash button on him. Um, I was visiting and the nurse could not get him breathing. He just, it turned out he had, they called it a mucus plug, but basically his throat was blocked and she had to, she asked me very gently, oh, could you just step out for a second? She was very calm. I'm like, sure, what? No problem. And then all of a sudden the alarm in his room went off and she wanted me out so she could push the button and get the team in. And once he was, you know, they got the mucus plug out, he was fine. But I mean, there were lots of days like that, you know, just as the sun is in my eyes. Mm. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a slog. They talk a lot in your first days in the NICU about the roller coaster that is the NICU, and it's true. There are good days, there are bad days. There are some of them that are both in the same day, where you're having a great day and then you suddenly crash, and then you are good again. And it is, it's exhausting. And really what makes it is the nurses that you're surrounded by and the staff in the NICU are, I mean, I was there 95 days and there's only one person in my entire experience I didn't like. Other than that, I mean, I'm still friends with the nurses. Mm. They're like family. And that, that says a lot about the care yeah. you all received. Oh, you know. Amazing. The dedication. Yeah. Yeah. We were off air and we were talking really about, in part, some of the motivation for writing the book. Um, can we go back to that, Melissa? And so when I was in the NICU, I craved information. I wanted someone to tell me what I was going to go through, kind of explain in human terms what this experience would be like and give me some hope for the what I could end up with. And all I could find, there's some great books out there written by doctors about prematurity or doctors that had a premature baby, but it has this medical, like they already understood it spin, or there was a lot of ones that were, you know, the premature birth was God's will and you just had to have faith. And I wanted raw. I wanted the truth. I wanted to understand it. And so that kind of led me down the path of writing a book that is, it's raw. There's, I don't cover, I don't make things light. It's very, very real. You, there are points where you like, this feels like it's going to happen forever. And there are other points where you might laugh because you do laugh in the NICU. Um, but I wanted something that would get, that would show the resilience, the realness, the rawness, but also hopefully give people a little bit of hope. Um, you know, not at their, not everyone's going to come out of the NICU with the experience I came out of it, but I would hope that my experience could help someone set themselves up, I guess, to have as positive an experience as possible. Yeah. Again, I, I'm grappling with how powerful this is, and it's such a life-and-death story, and I'm so... I mean, it's relieved, and I'm sure everyone is, that it ended up with life. It did. Um, how, how is Sam doing now? He's great. He is 11. He's in fifth grade. He's bilingual. He's um, enamored with F1 racing and NASCAR, which 
from a person who does not know anything about F1 racing in NASCAR, I find fascinating. <laughs> He's hilarious. He loves his pets. He loves to do things with his sister. Um, in terms of long-term effects from the NICU, he, um, he has glasses, but, you know, who doesn't? And he only needs to wear them to see the chalkboard in class. Otherwise, he doesn't wear them. Oh, and to see his Xbox games, please. Because, you know, you want to make sure you're seeing that clearly. He, Absolutely important. Um, sometimes gets constipated. Oh, well. Um, and, you know, the other one is he, he is autistic. And part of that is, I believe, you know, when, when you're born at as early as he was, his brain was smooth. So, you know, when you think about like the typical brain, there's ridges and there's the two uh, hemispheres and everything. At 24 weeks, it's one smooth piece. And so that all developed in a non-natural um, setting. And so some of the connectors are missing. And so he is his own brand of autism. He's um, mainstreamed. He, again, like I said, he's bilingual. And other than that, I mean, he's just great. Like, if you lined him up and said, okay, pick out the preemie, no one's picking Sam. He's, he's big. He's just a normal-looking 11-year-old with really good freckles. And does he know his story? He does. In fact, um, so I got – my book comes out in November, but I got an advanced reader copy, and I, my dad was reading it. My dad put it down and Sam snuck into the room, grabbed it and vanished with it. And in a day, devoured the book. Wow. And that kept going, I didn't know that part of the story. And he was, uh, he probably shouldn't have read it. Uh, there's some stuff in there that an 11 year old probably shouldn't read, but he just was um, drawn in and wanted to know every part of the story. And, you know, I, I don't believe in keeping diagnoses or um, past from him. It, it makes no sense. It, it, it is who he is, and it's made him who he is today. And so I think it's it's great for him to know. And he loves telling people. You know, I was really small when I was born. Like, really small. Like, okay. And it's I think it's great. I think it helps him understand sort of who he is. Hmm. Uh, I wonder where he got that resilience. <laughs> I had my mother probably. <laughs> um, so how how do you manage now? I mean, is, is there still residual worry or dreams uh, well, you know, or right? There's always yes. um, he. You know, we were rehospitalized a few times um, in his first two years, but he has been on a, and I knock on wood as I say it, a hospital-free streak now going on seven years, maybe. Um, so he really is strong. Um, so I don't worry so much um, about medically with him. I think now it's, where is he, how is he going to do as he gets older and more demands are put on him? Um, just from, you know, the fact that he's autistic, is he going to be able to stay mainstreamed? 
Will he go to college? Will I be living with my child for the rest of my life? I mean, you know, all those worries. But the reality is he's just a normal 11-year-old to me at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I, I so appreciate you, you coming on the show. And you know, the, the Dr. Joe show is based on the I am approach, the idea that we're always doing the best we can. Uh, with the potential to change. So even the story that you've told us is still a demonstration of an I am. No, this is still the I am. Because there are four domains, your home domain, your social domain, the biological domain, and the IC domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? Because the domains interconnect, this means a small change in any domain can have a big effect. So I'm wondering, Melissa, for the audience members that may be struggling with infertility or premature babies or, or just having babies, what small change can you recommend to them so that they can perhaps manage better? I think letting go. So, I, you know, I was very, I had a plan. I, I knew what I wanted. I wanted my kids to be two years apart and it had to be this way. You know, your birth plan, your everything, you just, you need to let it go. You need to be able to accept what the hand that you're dealt. It may not be a good one. It may be a hard pill to swallow, but just letting go of that expectation and take what you have. And is that what you were able to do? I didn't have a choice. So, yeah, I mean, it was like, again, I was very determined on how much time my kids would have apart. And then I miscarried. I was like, okay. Then they'll be this far apart. And then I miscarried. I was like, okay, they'll be this far apart. Um, and so I think you just, I, it's not easy and I'm not really well known for it, but I did it. And it's letting go of that expectation so you can be happy with what you've got. Yeah. And then the second truth of the I am, because everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them. That's what the I see domain. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? And that has an effect on the biological domain because, you know, it feels different if you feel you're being treated with respect or disrespect. And you're a part of someone's home or social domain. This means you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Melissa Harris, author. Given the story that you are telling, what kind of influence do you want to be? I want to be hopeful. Um, I went through a lot. I suffered quite a bit. I'm still here. I'm still going. I'm, I feel like we're thriving as our family. Um, so I, I want people to feel hope that miscarriage is awful, but you can get through it. Infertility is hard, but you can get through it. Prematurity is rough, but you can get through it. Um, so hope. I would hope, hope. I hope. And, and I like to think also, just to add on to that, that you never have to worry alone. You yeah. don't do this alone. And the fact that you had all these dedicated nurses and the health professionals and the family, your mom, dad, people out there listen we are one group that's called humanity. There are many adversities that we will face, but we don't have to do any of them alone. You don't. We can do this together. We have to. Yeah. 
Melissa, thank you so much for your story of hope. Sam, wherever you are, Irene, everyone, thanks for lending us your mom for the hour. Bye, guys. We'll see you next week with the Dr. Joe Show. Bye now. Dear Romeo.